Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampkin, and my guest today is the founder of Charles Jackson Media, and he's also the author of the, of the upcoming book, Low Down, Good for Nothing, an uncensored account of the Black man in America. Mr. Charles Jackson, thank you for joining me. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? Thank you for having me. It's definitely an honor and a pleasure. Anytime I can sit down and be on the other side of a podcast interview and not be the one that's having to do what you're about to do right now. <laughs> I got the easy part. I just got to answer questions. Hey, look, you're not supposed to say that on, on the podcast. Because <laughs> you believe me, I know. And it's, it, the crazy thing is I'm rarely invited to podcasts. So when I do get invited, I'm like, yes, I could just sit back and talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, man, but... Um, all, all kidding aside, I really am honored that you reached out and say, let's connect for a conversation. I be believe it's going to be one very relevant, real, and it, it's one of those things where anytime we can connect with folks either in the same space or outside of our space to have those meaningful conversations about, you know, what they're doing and, and bringing awareness to maybe what they're doing to collaborate, right? That's what it's all about. You and I both have our own sort of platforms, but I think it's powerful when we can come together and connect, man, we can just take what we're doing to another level. So I appreciate this and this opportunity. And I'm and I really appreciate you doing it. And I'm really honored to have you here. Great, man. I'm excited. Let's, let's start with Charles Jackson Media. Um, what what gave you the idea to launch it? <laughs> so you know, on a on a journey, I'm on a journey, my friend. Um, once I left the Marine Corps, I was doing a lot of leadership training and, and coaching. My wife and I, we also lead a marriage and family organization called You Before Me. So we, we do premarital coaching, we do marriage coaching, we do single coaching, meaning just with the men or with just a woman and then also couples, helping them have stronger, healthier marriages. I was also engaged in a little bit of work in terms of inclusion and diversity um, helping people bridge the gaps of social divides and racial divides and gender divides. So I was doing all of those sort of in three different lanes, as you will, for a couple years. And um, last year, when the pandemic kind of hit and I really had time to slow down and think about what was the connector between the three that I was doing, because I knew I just can't continue to be sort of really divided in those three lanes. And then I just realized, man, um, that everything that I do came back to relationships and using um, my, my platform, my, my voice and my giftings to help folks have better relationships in every area. Even in the leadership space, the premise of what I teach is about helping supervisors have better relationships through my relational leadership model. And so I was like, okay, so relationships is at the heart of what I do. I'm the person that's doing it, me being Charles Jackson, except for when my, my, my wife comes together when we do couples coaching. And I'm using media. I'm using uh, Facebook Lives. Um, I'm, I'm using YouTube videos, and I'm doing short stories on the various social media outlets, and I'm interviewing people in public. And so I had a love for media. So I said, how can I bring all of this together and really be more intentional and strategic? And I was just sitting down talking with some of my um, team members that support me with these endeavors. And they said, well, man, you're, you're the brand, Charles. People love you. They love what you do. Just let's bring that all together under the umbrella of Charles Jackson Media. And I, I slept on it and I was like, that's it. 
that's it. I still get to do everything that I love doing and nobody can kind of question like, wait, why is he talking about, you know, relationships? Well, why is he talking about leadership? Well, Charles Jackson Media, we talk all things relationships, no matter what sector you find yourself in. So that's how that that kind of unfolded. The, the the program that I watched that actually became that made me come, become familiar with you was um, Race Talks Uncut. Mm hmm. Excellent, excellent um, dialogue. Great program. Um, what made you? What made you put that on your platform? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I'm, I'm I try to be intentional within the spaces that I operate. And so, when the pandemic hit, I turned to my team and I said, "Hey, we're diving right in to bring support to people who are had businesses really shaken up. They have to." go from being in brick and mortar to now operate in virtual spaces. They were, they were selling one product and maybe they have to sell another one. They're going to have to make these pivots. We need courageous leaders during this time. And so I launched at that time, leadership 911 when crisis and courage collide. And we just sat on this journey and I was sitting down with CEOs of fortune 200 companies, COOs, best-selling authors and everybody and having conversations about how to make a pivot during this crisis, right? And how we can all stay afloat and maybe even reinvent, reinvent ourselves in a way that is more advantageous to us. And so that kicked off. But right after that, on the heels of, of the COVID-19, the civil unrest broke out. And we saw what was going on around the country with folks now, the protest and the rioting, and we got the, the political campaigns getting ready to take off and everything with the presidency. And I said, again, how, what can I do to add value to folks' lives? And so Race Talks Uncut was birthed out of me wanting to say, okay, at the end of the day, we're having issues connecting across these different social divides, as I said in, the, in the, my intro, whether it be racial, gender, sexual orientation, religion, whatever it is, let's use our space, create a platform where we can have conversations and hopefully educate, inspire, and empower all of us to change our um, debilitating and really damaging unconscious biases, prejudices, and our racial behaviors. And that's how Race on race Talks Uncut was birthed. You have, looking at your show, I've watched it on YouTube. The visuals are amazing. Um, you've done an excellent job of providing the visual piece. Um, are you looking to transition to the audio piece? I am but I don't want to go completely away from the visual because I love it so much, which is why I was so pumped when the team came to me, you know, they kind of laid out a couple of names, Charles Jackson speaks and Charles Jackson inspires and Charles Jackson does this. And so when we landed on Charles Jackson media, I was really pumped up because I was like, I can still do my videos. I can still do, you know, live streams because I really like it. I really enjoy it. And so, yeah, with, with the, lives i do have a lot of visual effects because i learned if you can you know get people engaged and have something that is visually appealing and you have great content then they'll they'll engage with that content longer so if it's a video you know they'll watch it a little bit longer if they're not like squinting their eyes trying to see and you know you got some music and stuff right so i wanted to bring all of that together literally for an experience so when you sat down and especially talking about race, sometimes it's not easy to have those type of conversations. And so I wanted to create this relaxed vibe, right? To have that type of conversation where folks can just feel comfortable. But when 
because I understand that not everybody can sit down and watch a YouTube video. And if you don't have that one app, it'll time out on you if you try and, you know, click to something else. We are now moving to the more traditional podcast where it's just audio only on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else that folks, you know, consume their podcast material. So that is in the works right now, actually. Well, let me say this, because because you just so we clear, you can have both <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the visual and see that one of the reasons I I was I admire your video so much is because that's what I'm lacking. Like I have audio, but I don't have any visuals. And it's just, you know, it's, it's almost like you have to make a choice. You don't mm -hmm. have to. But one of the things because I do a lot of Internet and my Wi-Fi is not the best. Mm -hmm. I kind of get a little nervous about doing the visual piece, but I will say your your visuals are amazing. <laughs> but thank you. It was it was something where um, over the years, like I started with these lives with my relationship coaching in 2014, where we were doing, you know, marriage Mondays and doing a, a 30 minute, you know, teaching every Monday. And then that evolved to doing conferences. And so, again, going back to 2014, there's been a lot of trial and error and what works and what doesn't work and adding sound and incorporating graphics and all of that. When I was doing it back in 2014, it's progressed to what it is now. And I do appreciate the positive feedback. It is super encouraging because the look and feel of the shows that you've recently watched, we just got there over the last four months. And so I'm extremely excited to hear that positive feedback because I feel like I've been working on getting there since 2014, <laughs> but you are right. So we'll have the video podcast, which we'll record um, and, 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 and then take that audio, repurpose it. And it will still be a part of the podcast um, on the traditional platforms. And so folks still will be able to have both coming from us. Okay. I listened to a podcast earlier um, that you were a guest on. Um, you would have to mention the, the brother name because I don't want to mess it up. I believe it was Fred, but I didn't get the last name. Uh, yeah, Fred Fitzgiles. Okay. A, uh, he leads an organization and a group um, called It's Time to Lead. And okay. he does a podcast and he has a group on Facebook. Been in the IT world for many, many years. I think maybe like 20 years of experience in the IT world and, and doing podcasts and radio as well. And so, yeah, I had the pleasure of being on his show recently. And one thing that I noticed, um, again, it was a great conversation. I noticed how you talked about your spirituality a lot. So I wanted to, I wanted you to talk to the listeners about that. Like how, how does that keep you grounded? How does that shape your perspective? Absolutely. I, th I think for me growing up with a devout Christian mom um, and a dad who didn't, you know, stop us from going to church and being involved in the church, but that he wasn't the leader in that respect. It was my mom. Early on, I saw the importance that she laid on understanding that we were put here. One, we didn't create ourselves and we weren't put here for ourselves. And even though there was a lot of scripture surrounding everything that she did and, you know, going to church all the time and reading your word at the heart of what she was trying to teach me and my sisters and my brothers is that we need to, in all that we do, love God and love people. And so for me, in my walk and in my journey, I've understood that everything that I do goes back to those two things. I'm doing this for God and my love and appreciation for the life and the gifts and the talents that he's giving me. 
to then serve the people that he will ultimately bring through my life. Because my purpose is not this, this one thing that I do and it's over. It's not, it's not static. It's very dynamic. Meaning as I go through life and I go through this journey, there will be times that people and things will come into my life for an appointed time. And I need to be ready and prepared to be able to impact them. But if I'm just thinking about myself and I'm just here and it's all about me, I'll miss those opportunities and I won't be loving and serving God well by not loving and serving people well. I want to be a positive contributor to society and also to his kingdom. And so anytime something goes on in my life because I have that foundation of faith, I go back to my perspective and my perspective needs to be, it's either going to be I'm defeated, I've messed up, I've taken the wrong step. Um, I'm not good enough. You know, all of the negative things that, that, that come into our mind, James, we start to say, um, maybe I, I bit off more than I can chew or I'm feeling inadequate. Or I don't got enough education. And we, when anytime something goes wrong, we can have that defeated perspective or we can shift and we can have this perspective that if God allowed it, he's using it. And in any instance, it's just an opportunity for me to learn something about him, myself, or maybe the endeavor that I was pursuing. Maybe it's the product, the people, or or the, the time investment that I need to change. But it doesn't mean that life is completely over and I've totally missed the mark. It's really just an opportunity for me to learn more about the one whom I trust is really in. And that's, that's my Lord and Savior. Because if I was to just trust in myself... Uh, whew, brother, who, who knows where, where I be? I tell you that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but that's a great question, man. I'm glad you asked. Definitely. You talk. You you've had you've um you're you're a um, leader on your current position. You've launched your own company, which makes you a leader of that. Um, how would you describe yourself as a leader? If I was going to describe myself as a leader, I'm going to use the word relational. Um, I'm a relational leader and I strive to be a relational leader. And I know leadership is one of those things where it got real popular about 10 years ago and everybody broke out with leadership books and leadership seminars and leadership conferences and you name it because it got really popular. But I think we was missing the mark because we were taking the approach that leadership is about being in this position to now give orders or to now not not have to do as much work, right? And then somebody came along and said, well, leadership really is about serving. And they hit the nail on the head. But then also leadership is about having that courage to serve and having a little bit of humility and care for others. And I took all of those different traits that I thought were very important to genuine and real leadership and I said, it all goes back to relational, being relational and treating people like human beings. Prime example, when I was in the Marine Corps, everybody, you know, strives to be a great leader and they train us, every single one of us to be leaders, 179,000 leaders, believe it or not, <laughs> because at any moment, one man could go down, get hurt and you have to step up and lead. Yeah. You have 19, 20 year old, um, you know, boys or, or young men in charge of hundreds sometimes. And so everybody's a leader. But I noticed that in the encounters that I had with my troops and my Marines and those under me, when I would get feedback from them later on, you know, as they've 
gotten promotions and they've gone on to do other great things and they invite me to to come and watch them get promoted or something or get an uh, award, they would say, you know, I want to thank Staff Sergeant Jackson for being here, um, a great leader who is responsible for me being here. And they wouldn't talk about how I was the fastest, the strongest. I was um, great on the range with my weapon and being an expert marksman. They wouldn't talk about how I was meritoriously promoted to every rank that I um, obtained in the Marine Corps. They would say, when I was struggling, when I had no confidence in myself, when I was going through family situations, when I was missing my family because of the long training evolution, when I, when I had no confidence in myself, he was there and he listened and he treated me like a human being. And he saw me for me and who I was and he allowed me to be my authentic self. And that, that would happen time and time again, James. And it just stuck out with me. It was those relational moments that re- that me sitting knee to knee with them and allowing them to be human and I be human and say, hey, we all struggle. We all have this going on and X, Y, and Z, right? But in good old Marine fashion, how are we going to overcome this? Because that's what we do. We adapt and we overcome. And so in all things, any situation I, I, I find myself in, I want to be that relational leader that is relatable and real in everything that I do and say. There are so many characteristics that make up a leader, but in your opinion, what are the most important ones? Serving, courage, compassion, and conviction. Because as a leader, you're going to be put in a position, right, to you, you say you're leading an organization and you want to go after a big client. But the client is known for cutting corners. The client is known for not taking care of their clients or whatever. And they got a bad reputation. But there's a lot of money involved that you could easily make. You're going to need some type of conviction (laughs) to keep you from making that particular merger or making that investment or connecting with that company. Even though it may be lucrative if you know it could taint your business or put a bad taste in the mouth of your current customers. So you got to have conviction. You also got to have courage to make the tough decisions, whether it's in the military or the corporate space, or even in your family, not every decision that you make is going to be popular with those under you. But if you've done your research, you've held true to your conviction, you're not just thinking about yourself, then you got to make those decisions with, with courage and sometimes swiftly, but then you got to have compassion because folks are not where you're at as the leader. You're put in charge and you're the leader because they saw something in you, your ability to, and this is my definition of, of leadership, that endeavor of taking people, um, ideas and concepts or even organizations further than they would have gone without you or on their own. And it's about empowering others to really become the best version of themselves. And so people are not where you're at, and that's why you're the leader. And you got to have compassion, understanding. They might not be able to run at your pace. They might not have the insight or the innovation that you have, and you have to have that compassion for where they're at and compassion for when they come to you and say, hey, I'm really having a bad week because, um, as an, an example, I'm really having a bad week because I have no child care this week, and I need to take off a day or two. And you can say, well, we got a mission to meet Sorry, you can't take the time off. You have to just deal with it and you move on. And I'm sharing that example because I've seen it. Now that individual has to wrestle with their job and their income or their family. A compassionate leader 
will find a way to be able to find that balance that allows both to be taken care of. Because at the end of the day, if you have them there working for you and they're thinking about their family, the child that they had to leave with somebody they really don't trust because it was last minute, you're not going to get the best product. The team is not going to be as strong and as healthy and have that work relationship that you want to have. So in the end, nobody wins, right? So you got to have that compassion as well. Wow. We are pretty much, I would say, I'm going to, I'm just going to say everyone, but I could be stretching it. But we all meet that person when we're young, when we're impressionable, who could who could really shape how we look at our life and how we how we choose to live our life moving forward. And for that for that um, for you, it was a woman by the name of Miss Lowry. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about Miss Lowry some more. <laughs> man, <laughs> man, James, look at here, man. So, wow, I was, um, as a kid, um, where I grew up in Daytona Beach, you know, uh, my community was predominantly black. Everybody looked like me for the most part and was friends and family. And, you know, if they wasn't family, it doesn't matter because it, it took a village to raise a kid, right? And so you had that sense of community. But then I got bused to a school that was about 35, almost maybe 40 minutes away and I was in now like a predominantly white neighborhood and city and, you know, the school and everything. And it did a lot of things for me that just recently I've understood the repercussions of that particular desegregation attempt that Volusia County took. But that's a different story. But it, it, it made me, I was trying to fit in, right? And I was trying to find myself. And I went through this sort of identity crisis because I would get off the bus and there would be stairs and you know, teachers would not give me as many chances in terms of behaviors they gave the other kids, you know, who didn't look like me. And, you know, when we had to hold hands in circle because we was playing a game, my kids let go of my hand, you know, they wiped their hands off on their jean pants. And, you know, that messed with me, bro. Wow. And so I started acting up a little bit, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. But then I got to third grade and I met Miss Linda Sue Lowry and she was totally different. She 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 gave this extra care and she saw my now desire to try and fit in in any way I could, which was by making people laugh and making jokes in class. It's really just a cry for help. Like I felt like an outsider and she embraced me. She, you know, the first couple of times I was, you know, goofing off in line, walking to the lunch line. She like held my hand and like didn't wipe her hand. And I was like, oh, she's not going to wipe her hand off. You know, this is different. But, you know, so I'm walking in line now without, you know, goofing off because of her. But then she got me involved in poetry. And this is, was a game changer because now what I do um, in terms of like writing copy and writing um, like sales pages for my, my business and my organization is paying off. But she got me into poetry, reading it first and ultimately writing it. And it started where she would let me read it in front of the class and people would clap for me. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, they're not just laughing at me for telling jokes or getting in trouble. Like, they're applauding me. And then I read it in front of, like, the principal in one of our um, meetings at school. And, you know, now the school is watching. They applauded. So much so I end up being invited um, to read one of the poems or recite one of the poems now because I'm reciting them at a Volusia County School Board meeting. And I was real short. And I had to stand up on the podium. And my mom was there. And she was so proud. And Ms. Lowry was there. And it was just a big deal, man. But um, it really changed, one, my behavior, but it changed my, my fight to now find my identity. I was 
comfortable being me because at first I felt like everybody was ahead of me. I had more to offer and I didn't have anything to offer. But, you know, through poems and writing poems and reciting poems, I kind of found my thing and it helped me settle down and become a good student. But now I love to write. Um, I write a little bit of nonfiction stuff. And like, you know, I got a couple books, but there's one that you mentioned earlier, uh, Low Down Good for Nothing and Uncensored Account of the Black Man in America. But I got a couple other leadership and marriage books coming out right behind that. But I just shout out to Miss Lowry, man. She was that teacher that gave that care. She was compassionate. She had the courage not to treat me like how everybody else was treating me. And, you know, yeah, it really had an impact on my life, as you could tell. That's, that's a blessing. And I'm glad that that happened for you because who knows how life could have turned out if it didn't happen that way. Exactly, man. Exactly. Before, when we, when we, when I first reached out to you, we had a conversation. Um, you mentioned that you were in the Marines. And when I asked you how many years you served, you said 13. And that number is odd because I'm sure anybody who was in the military know the magic number is 20. <laughs> but you get your retirement, you get everything else. So what made you get out at 13? Wow. <laughs> so, um, so let's back up, man. I actually got out at six. So I left active duty at six. And how that happened was I was serving on active duty. I was doing very well. I was in a place where I was preparing to reenlist. I had got promoted to four ranks, um, meritoriously, and I was doing really good. And everybody at my kind of state, you know, being at the at a sergeant rank at this point, they were in like eight, nine years. I had only been in six. And I go to put in my reenlistment package. I put it all together and I have this dream. And so I guess I should even back up a little bit and tell you this. I went into the military, not because I had military folks in my family or it was something I always wanted to do. I had a dream that I was on the phone with a Marine Corps recruiter I didn't know about the Marines at the time. I just remember seeing his uniform. I remember him saying, yeah, um, staff sergeant so-and-so with the Marines, and we would love to have a conversation with you. And I woke up and I was like, the Marines, what is that? You know, I kind of <laughs> looked it up then and in the phone book, we had yellow pages back then. I know you remember that. Yeah. And I found a recruiting station and I called the Marine Corps recruiter, had a conversation with him, short version. I enlisted and left for the Marine Corps maybe about three months later. Now, fast forward, I've done very well. It's afforded me opportunities that I know I wouldn't have had being in Daytona and just kind of staying there. And so I'm truly grateful and I want to keep going at this thing. So I go to reenlist and I have a dream. And in that dream, I, I, I knew that I was not supposed to submit that paperwork wow. and I needed to step away from it. And I wrestled with it for about three weeks because I was like, God, why? I'm doing so good. You know, it's, it's brought so much opportunities for my family, financial security. We're traveling. I don't want to let this go. And I didn't share this dream or what I was getting ready to do with anybody. Ended up having my brother over for a lunch. It was around the holiday time. And he's asking, hey, bro, what's up? What's new? And I was like, man, I'm just really struggling because I feel like I God wants me to leave the Marine Corps. And he started laughing. And I was like, what's up? And he said, I already knew that. I just couldn't tell you. God showed me that I had to wait for you to know. So that way you knew it was him. Wow. I was like, are you serious? I've been struggling for three weeks with this. <laughs> Losing sleep, like working out at four in the morning, trying to get another answer. <laughs> so I left active duty at six years. Um, 
and you know, I drop to the what we call the individual ready reserve. So that means you're not totally, totally out because anytime you enlist, even though you only may be on active duty for four years, you got a total of eight years that you're obligated. So it's either on active duty, all eight, or you know, part of that in the reserves. So I dropped to the reserves. While I was in the reserves, another Christian Marine said that my package landed on his paper and he had an opportunity for uh, sort of like part-time active duty. And if he asked me if I was interested and I said, sure. And I took that opportunity part-time and that's what allowed me to go from being six years of active duty to a total of about 10 years active duty. And then I dropped back to the reserves and did three more in the reserves. But I knew I couldn't stay on active duty because God had already told me that no, that's not your path, that 20 year retirement or, you know, 20 year or more retirement. That's not what I have for you. And I say, I wrestle with that brother. I wrestle with it. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, that's a life, life uh, changing decision. So mm -hmm. yep. that's something yeah. to take life. You, I'm gonna back up because yeah. it was, I, again, I listened to a part, the podcast with the gentleman, um, Fred. Fred, yeah. And I want you to touch on something that's really important because I think a lot of people need to understand that the, the reason you joined the Marines because of your recruiting, you two had a divine connection. So I wanted you to talk more about divine connections. Yeah. I've realized that through this journey, like I say, when we're not living for ourselves, people will come into your life at the right time and at the right moment, right? We are relational beings. We're not to live on an Island. There are things that you need that are in me or that I know and, and we need to connect so that transfer can take place. There's things that James does and knows and need and has experience that others will come through your life and they're going to need, they're going to need those things and you're going to be able to transfer it and support them in whatever way God leads you. Right. And so when I was on the phone with staff Sergeant Richardson at the time, he was a staff Sergeant. There were so many connectors that brought us together. As we were sitting there talking, we both had a wife and have been married about the same um, amount of years, maybe a couple months off. We had both um, same amount of uh, children. We both grew up in the church. We both loved basketball. We both loved and was in the band and played music. And we're like pulling up pictures of us in the band and we're we're talking about basketball. And, and like he's not trying to recruit me at this point because he knew his calling was more than just recruiting individuals as well. Cause he was a believer. Mm. He, we talked like we was brothers who knew each other forever. And he said to me, because I don't know if I said this earlier when I was on, when I had the dream, I was talking to the recruiter about the reserves. And so when I called him, I said, Hey, I want to know about the Marine Corps reserves. And he said, okay, well, you know, come in, let's have a, so we had a talk and he said, look, Jack, why not look he's already calling me jack and he's not even calling me charles <laughs> or chuck at that point and um he said man you got a family um you you got uh, a son and you're you're in a place where you have an opportunity here to really do something great for your family i'm not going to recommend that you go to reserves because it's going to be part-time once a month this amount of um, income this amount of travel active duty is going to afford you a whole lot more opportunities than going the reserve route. He said, I'll let you decide, but from brother to brother, man to man, I think you would be great as an active duty Marine. And that was the conversation he had with me. 
not knowing anything about the Marine Corps, not having aspirations about that, but being at total peace sitting there. And I had heard other people talk about stories of recruiters with the Army and, you know, the Air Force, but nothing really with the Marines. I didn't know anything about them. I was at peace as he sat there and talked. And then we prayed, right, wow. for me and my decision and, you know, for my family. He said, regardless of what you do, you come to the mall, stop in and say, hey, what's up to me? He became a mentor, um, still a mentor to this day. We talked a couple months ago about raising teenagers, and we, we had a good laugh, but also encouraged one another about similar situations we had. And that was in 2007. Here we are now, 2020, and we, we still keep in contact, and I consider him a brother, friend, but a mentor. That's a blessing. That's that's truly a blessing. And, and and that's why those those relationships are so important because mm -hmm. God aligns us with the people we need to be aligned with. Absolutely. Yes, sir. It has been mutually beneficial. But when I say that one decision, James, completely changed the trajectory of mine because I was content with staying in Daytona Beach, you know, working some, you know, a job around there. I had messed around in college and lost my band scholarship, so I wasn't in school anymore. And I was just going to go get a job and start, you know, working a nine to five and have a limited um, knowledge and limited exposure to one, what was out there that I could get into and other gifts and talents and abilities that I had. But I really felt like I would have gotten stuck in Daytona and just stayed there, not really living up to my full potential. Once I went to the, the Marine Corps, it unleashed a whole bunch of things because it exposed me to people that didn't look like me, that had dreams, that had ambitions, that came from other places. I got to travel. I got to see what I was good at. I became, like I say, I was progressing through the ranks so fast. I saw how God had placed so much inside of me, and it just really began to come out once I was obedient and I raised my hand and I enlisted into the Marine Corps. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that decision there really has positioned me to be able to do what I do now, especially in the leadership space. Wow. Let's go into the book, Low Down, Good for Nothing, mm -hmm. a sensitive account of the black man in America. First of all, the title. Wow. <laughs> let's, start, <laughs> let's start with that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the title to be um, just that, like that reaction, like, wait, I, I what? I need to read this. <laughs> what is this about? But it, so I got to be honest with you as a black man growing up in America, um, the way my mom raised me and the conversations that we had, we really didn't have those race talks, you know, going back to the title of my, my video podcast, we really didn't have race talks. You know, my friends would talk about race, like, man, you know, you can't trust, you know, white people or you got to watch out. And, you know, my mom, we love everybody. We treat everybody like we God want us to treat them, and that's how that's what she taught. So there was no separation, the division of race. It was son, you know, you carry yourself um, like like a child of God, and you will be okay. Dad was, I mean, you watch your back, son, you know. And so I grew up seeing all of the prejudice that other folks had towards blacks, and especially black men. And I was a black man, and some of the biases, um, whether they were conscious or unconscious. And just how they treated and, and the perception that other races had for the black man in this country. And it was very negative. Always it was just negative. They're thugs, they're baby daddies, they're gangbangers, they're drug dealers, 
They're going to end up in prison. They are not positive contributors to society. They wear their pants around their waist, wear fitted caps and Jordans and hanging on a corner with a strapped. And so when people would talk about the black man, that's how they would describe him. And I was like, well, I got to a place. I like, well, when I started having little corporate jobs or I would get a job even in Daytona, even before the military, and I would sort of advance to a manager position, I wanted to be treated differently. So I thought I needed to act differently. I needed to make sure that I didn't portray any of those negative stereotypes that they had um, on the black man. So I think around after college and going into the military, I just changed my, my whole dress. I stopped wearing fitted caps, even though I loved them, would only wear, you know, Jordans around family and, you know, or joggers and just was always like dressed up jeans, a button up and a blazer, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, going after education. And, and because I thought I could get to a place where I could break past some of those stereotypes and be seen in a different light. And so I was really striving to do that. And writing this book honestly has made me realize um, how much of myself I lost. I was so, just going to ask, that, go had to, that had to be draining to, to, to not be yourself. Brother, it was, and I didn't realize it because I was having a little bit of success. Like I say, everywhere I went, I was being successful. At the Marine Corps, I was still being successful, getting promoted, getting into leadership positions. People, you know, Charles, you're great, you do this good, and all of this type of stuff. And I was really blocking out what was really going on. But when I would come home sometimes, most times, I would be exhausted and really didn't know why. It was because of the mental and emotional striving, right, to go against what I thought was the perception of a black man and make other people and mostly white men and women comfortable around me. And that type of striving every day when I would come home, I would be exhausted and it really wasn't physical exhaustion. It was mental and emotional and I did not even know it. I'm popping off at my son. Why you, how many times have I told you to get these scooters up? You know, why are you leaving stuff out on the road? Cause I'm so agitated. It's really just because I'm drained from being a black man in this country and being in a boardroom and wondering why that guy is giving me the mean look in the back is because I'm black. Why didn't that person receive um, me being given the presentation and why did his whole demeanor change when he found out that I was the leader of this team? And, you know, why didn't that guy want to shake my hand when I read, when I had my hand, held my hand out to shake his hand, you know, why did he just turn the other way? And, you know, why did that white woman cross the street with her dog when I was coming down the street, when I just saw her stop and let her dog, you know, be petted by somebody else who she didn't know. So all of that all day long, bro, you know, when I would come, I would be exhausted. So watching George Floyd's death and in all honesty and transparency, I had stopped really watching the news. And I even think I had become desensitized to black killings to man. That's just how it is. I, I couldn't watch it. And so I wouldn't watch those things. People would tell me what was going on and I would, you know, Trayvon Martin and, you know, Tamir Rice and all of that. And, you know, I knew about it. I'm from Florida. So I knew about, you know, Trayvon Martin and stuff and, you know, Michael Brown and there's counselors we can name, but I had kind of stopped watching it because it was just, it would just really get me down and make me upset and angry and make me strive even more to not be what I thought would be the person that would be treated that way. If that makes sense. Right. I know it's a long response, but I'm, I'm going here because I got to unpack this for you. Oh, so now, you got time. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm watching George Floyd because I got to do a presentation and it's about race and, you know, um, social justice and stuff. And I studied 
social and criminal justice in school was my um, undergrad, and I'm in school to get my master's in criminal justice with an emphasis in cyber crimes. But again, social and criminal justice, I, I studied it and I loved it, but there was a part of it I was blocking out. So I'm watching George Floyd's death, man. I see the cop with his knee on his neck and he's sitting there eight minutes, 40 some odd seconds, his glasses on his forehead, three white cops standing around him, not intervening, not doing anything. And then you could see the life seeping out of George Floyd. And in that moment, God showed me that it was symbolic to the majority white race that would have the black population snuffed out of this country if they could. And that's how we are perceived. And in that moment, I realized and I was convicted because I said this to myself, nothing that I do, no matter my education, no matter moving my family to the suburbs or affluent neighborhood, no matter the job, serving in the Marine Corps and wearing a uniform, sacrificing my life for this country, no matter how many degrees and how many friends and circles I've run with and how diverse my universe is, I am still a black man in this country. And to most white men, they see us, and I said these words out loud, sitting at my computer with tears running down my eyes, they see us as low down, good for nothing. And I'm talking to nobody. Nobody's in the room with me. I said, man, this is some, this just ain't right. No matter what I do, no matter what we do, there is a majority population that sees the black man as low down, good for them. We can be president, we can be entrepreneurs, we can be community leaders. No matter what we do, the majority sees us this way. And I went to bed thinking about that. And the next day I woke up and I started writing low down, good for nothing an uncensored account of the black man in America. Wow. When can we expect, when can, when, when will it be released? I'm going to start pre-sales next month with the time we're recording this. So in March, I'll say, I'm not sure when this will be released, <laughs> but we'll, <laughs> we'll start pre-sales in March and, you know, um, maybe two to three weeks after that, we'll start shipping, but I'm excited right now, folks, they can get the preface. I've, I've offered a sneak peek to the book. I'm not sure how many folks do that, but my preface is actually available at charlesjackson.media and you can, you can kind of read it, the preface and see where I'm going. And, and I really pour my heart and my why into the pages of the preface to kind of set the stage. Cause I want the rest of the book to be palatable for anybody. Old, young, black, white man, woman, we all can come to those pages and, and, and get some, a sense of what's been the actual experience of the black man in this country, the different parts and players and what, where we are now and how we got there and then what we need to do to move, to move forward. Everybody see themselves. It's for educators. It's for individuals and families. And, you know, it, it, it really is one of those works that I'm super, super proud of because it's not this rant about, hey, look at the black man. We've been mistreated. We've been slaves. No, it's it's really a cry and a plea to make America something that it's never been. We fought for social justice for years. We've had all type of civil rights act. There's been um, three, four, you know, going back to 1866. But we have never had the type of America that all of those folks before us have fought for. And that's what this book is about, a an America where we truly are 
not seen as inferior based on our race. That's what we're trying to change. And that's what I'm trying to change. And so, yeah. Wow. I'm going to close with this. What is Charles Jackson purpose on this earth? Mm. I, wow. I'm, I'm, man, I tell you what, I'm a son. I'm a son of God. And because of that, everything that I do is predicated upon that relationship that I look to my creator. I call him Abba father. And I believe he's called me to be a connector. If I had to give you one word, but I'm a son and I have to live and operate in that sonship, understanding that everything that I do, everything that I am, everything that I shall become is predicated upon my covenant and my connection with Christ. And so as a connector, all of my ambitions and my dreams and my goals and my visions for my family and the two wonderful sons that I'm raising and my lovely wife, everything that I do, man, goes back to sonship because I've been given this opportunity as a redeemed child of God to now serve God and serve people. So that's who I am, man. I'm a, I'm a son. I'm a son of our creator whom I'm trying to serve and please and everything within me through, through the understanding that he's called me to connect people. Wow. Well, amen, brother. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Listen, I, and look, thank God for us connecting because it's truly been a pleasure and an honor having this conversation with you. Oh, man, it has been all mine. I am, I've enjoyed it. Um, I get to do this. Um, I'm blessed enough to do it a lot. I really loved I loved your questions, not because they were just questions. I loved this conversation because it was just, it was raw and real. And I could tell, man, that what you do, you really want to get to know people. You really want to help others get to know other amazing people. You really are using your gift, right, for interviewing and bringing folks together and asking the right questions and pulling out information because that's what we need. We perish for a lack of knowledge, meaning we just don't understand things. We don't understand people. We don't understand systems. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand this world. Your platform gives us an opportunity to gain understanding. And once we can understand something, we can stop fearing it. We can stop shunning it. We can stop hating it. We can stop dismissing it. And so I appreciate you for this moment that you have created for us to have this conversation and all the un hundreds and thousands other conversations that you would have through conversations with Lent. But man, salute you, my brother. Thank you. You too, brother. Thank you. And I, I really, truly appreciate the words. It, it means a lot. And you have a great platform as well. So I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the book. And I can't wait to get a copy of it. And we're going to make sure we let the people know how they can follow you and how they can you said you offer the pre-sale so we can let them know how to get, do the pre-sale as well. Yeah. So pre-sales, you can go to charlesjackson.media. Um, right now you download the preface starting in March, you'll be able to go ahead and get a pre-sale order in. It's going to come with a lot of swag. There'll be t-shirts, there'll be bookmarks, there'll be personal messages from me that go along with ordering your pre-sale copy. 
Um, and that's a way to connect with me right there, charlesjackson.media. But then on all the social handles, it, again, it's Charles Jackson Media, at Charles Jackson Media. Um, and, and LinkedIn and Facebook, my page is Charles Jackson Media. And that's where we do our Facebook Lives and we do my interviews and everything. But I would love to connect with you all out there who are listening and, and sharing James's podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I really appreciate you doing this because I know you're building your own platform. So for you to lend your time and talent to mine, I truly appreciate it. Yes, sir. Anytime, my friend. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to the podcast. I truly appreciate your support. You can find me on Instagram at conversations underscore with underscore lamp. I'm also on Facebook conversations with lamp and you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple podcast. You can also um, follow on SoundCloud and Apple as well. So continue to like, download and subscribe. Again, thank you all for listening. Have a great day.